Welcome to the Midweek Bible Study with Ben Schaefer, the podcast where we dive deep into the timeless wisdom of Scripture, one verse at a time. I'm your host, Ben Schaefer, and I'm thrilled to have you join on our journey through the pages of the Bible. We are currently studying the fifth book in the New Testament called The Acts of the Apostles. So grab your Bible, something to write with, and let's get started. Father in heaven, it's our privilege to to come before you today in our honor. Uh, We're humble. We're humbled by the idea that we can peer into your word and study your word and and divide it and, and, and really uh, devote our side, devote ourselves and be attentive. Uh, today to your word. Lord, I pray for attentiveness. I, I'm not, I'm not uh, easily entertained. I'm a person that drifts, my mind drifts, but Lord, I pray like supernaturally that you would literally focus my mind and in the listener's mind and the participant's mind in our hearts on what you want to speak, speak to us today through the power of your Holy Spirit, as we're going to learn today. It's only your power that we're going to get anything out of this. It's only through you. It's not persuasive speech. It's not my intellect. It's not my delivery. It's your power. So with that, I give you praise and adoration and worship today. And we look forward to what you have in store for us as we peer into the second uh, part of chapter two in Acts. In Jesus' name, amen. Wow, guys. Well, welcome back to Acts 2b. To be or not to be? Oh, that was really bad. We are at a very critical moment. This is a very critical moment in the book of Acts. Chapter 2 is obviously one of those big, those those very, uh, a very important chapter in the New Testament. We discovered that last week that something very unique happened. Uh, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, probably one of the most hotly, discussed and unfortunately debated um, uh, interpretations of what does this chapter mean for you, for me and for you and our families. But last week, we noticed that the, these, these manifestations of the Holy Spirit, uh, it had two great outcomes. There's, there's two outcomes to what we saw happen with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And I kind of charted it out here is the Holy Spirit outpouring or infilling, you could call it, led to a response. And what we're going to do is, is analyze the two responses to what the Holy Spirit, what, what people did when the Holy Spirit came. And then later on in this chapter, we're going to look at Peter's sermon. And then there was a response to that. And I really think there's something for you guys today as we analyze these two courses, these two instances, and then the consequence, I guess I could say, of each one of those things. And we're going we're gonna to see real quick, we're going to see in just a few minutes that there was actually two sub-responses to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We see uh, uh, people who were receiving it and people who were mocking it. So first we need to retrace our steps just a little bit. So we're going to go back a little bit 
This is this is why uh, that the arrival of the Spirit. Uh, that this is one of the things that I want to see. Uh, I want us to see is that the arrival of the Holy Spirit came after men believed. So I also want to look at that. Last week we kind of blew right over that. Did anybody else notice that? This was a little bit odd. That the Holy Spirit, He came and He filled the believer after placing their faith in Christ, sometime later. When in our experience now, the Holy Spirit indwells the, the individual placing their faith in Jesus instantaneously. So we have to we have to really analyze that. So last week we uh, we I I taught that the answer to this question is that God was seeking to distinguish this day from all the other days. In fact, we wouldn't even be having this class. We wouldn't even be talking about this moment if there wasn't an, a supernatural outpouring, an event to talk about. It's a it's a day, it's a specific time, it's ordained. And what do you does anybody remember or recall what this specific day was fulfilling? First fruits. First fruits feast. What, what was the other word for it? Um, Starts with a P. Pentecost. There it is. The day of Pentecost was fulfilled 50 days later, after we call it Easter but it was the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Fifty days later, the fulfilling of Pentecost happened when the Holy Spirit was poured out in that upper room with the disciples. So it's important that believers throughout history understand plainly that on this day, God instituted a unique ministry of the Spirit. Beginning on this day that we're talking about today, all believers would receive a personal, a personal indwelling of the Spirit, which we call the baptism of the Holy Spirit. What's baptism mean? Baptizo. It means to dunk. We are dipped. We are engulfed. We are, uh, another word is engulfed, like flame, being completely engulfed and immersed in the Holy Spirit. So now, uh, in, other, in other places, it's called baptism of fire. Since this marked such a dramatic departure from God's previous working among men in the Old Testament, as we called, or as we recalled, it warrants a little bit of a, a unique and unrepeatable display of God's power to set it apart. If you think about it, something had to make it special. So instead of the indwelling, these believers on that day, they believed the Father waited to send His Spirit until this special day. The disciples were not filled. Think about this. They did not have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit until this moment. They placed their faith in Christ. They spent their time with Christ. They saw Him on the cross. They saw Him break bread. They saw Him do miracles. They placed their faith in God, right? But they didn't have what you have yet. That's something to think about as you recall the Passion, as you recall the, the, the New Testament and, and the life and times of the disciples. So, for that reason, these men received the Spirit 
after they had believed, so as to mark the day. But after this day, guys, remember that believers receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit when they believe. However, these are two exceptions. There's, there's these two specific exceptions that trip everybody up when they, when they study the book of Acts, because there's three times, three times in the book of Acts that the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the order that we are used to, where faith, baptism of the Holy Spirit happen in, a, let's just say, unorthodox manner. Unique is the word. In, in, in fact, it comes in specific methodology and for specific reasons. So we're going to study these in crazy detail in, in weeks ahead. And I'm so excited about this because this open will open your eyes to the purpose of the gospel of, the, of Jesus Christ. We will study these. And so for, for just to your notes, for your notes, Acts 8 is the moment where we will see, yet again, a very specific outpouring of the Holy Spirit with demonstrative manifestations when the gospel, the keys of the kingdom, were given to the Samaritans. Okay? Does anybody know what the third one is? We saw, we saw yeah, we saw the, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit with the disciples. We saw the outpouring, well, you're going to see the outpouring of the Holy Spirit for, in Acts 8 for the Samaritans. What's next? Chapter 10. Yes, the Gentiles. So the keys of the kingdom, you're going to hear me say this a lot. There's three keys, if you will. There's three moments of time that God dispensed or, or decided to, in His sovereign will to give the keys of the gospel, meaning the good news of the coming kingdom, to three different types, three different people groups, three different three different uh, uh, social um, gatherings. Number one, the Jews. The Jews come first, y'all. And we just got re we just read when that happened. The, the 12 disciples. The second, the keys were given to the Samaritans. And I'm gonna I can't wait for you guys to, to check this out. That is crazy. Nobody thinks about this stuff. It's it blew my mind. The third, Gentiles. Crazy, right? Well, there's three distinct markers, three distinct events, three distinct manifestations of the Holy Spirit that are purposeful. One time, one time only. It's only happened one time. Each. One, two, three. And we're supposed to see this. It's written down. Luke wrote it down for us to see it and digest it and get curious about it and figure out what's in the end of the rainbow, if you will. What's it mean? Well, guys, I can't wait for you guys to figure that out. For now, I want to remind you of something that I taught on the first day we did the introduction. The story of Acts is a story of an outward movement. Remember? Of the gospel from Jerusalem to where? Yeah, the whole world. To Rome. In, in a Near Eastern... Uh, tradition in the first century church, if you said the whole world, that meant Rome. That's it. You know, that's where everybody's at. So it goes from Jerusalem to Rome. It's a, it's a story about that. Second thing it is, 
It's a story of how God's grace moved outward from the Jews first. His grace given to the, the oracles. His grace given to the Jews first. Then Samaritans. Then us, <laughs> the Gentiles. Everybody. As the gospel reaches each of these audiences, there is again an opportunity for God to make clear the arrival of His new ministry of the Spirit. So in Acts 2, we see, we see God bringing the indwelling of the Spirit to who? The Jews. And in this way, Scripture confirms that salvation is from the Jews and they will receive God's promise first. So they are always... They, they are the ones we see in Acts 2 to see the fulfillment of a festival that they'd been celebrating for hundreds of years called the Feast of Weeks. They actually got to see it happen. Did they get it? That's another, that's a big, big unfortunate no. But then when God opens the door to the Samaritans and later to the Gentiles, we, he will redisplay these manifestations for their benefit. It's for them to go, oh, I know, I know what this is. I know what this is. I get it. But after the third group sees the sign, this unique delayed indwelling, I'll call it the delay of indwelling of the Spirit comes to an end. Now, it's instantaneous. I want that to sink in. And the associated, I'll say, physical manifestations of the indwelling have met their purpose by the end of this third unique transaction. And also, they quickly to begin to diminish. Returning to the reaction of the crowd, I want to get down to business. Who wants to read Acts 2, 12 through 13? We're going to look at their response to this, the Holy Spirit's outpouring. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, They are filled with new wine. Ooh, they, my, my translation says that NASB 95 that says, They are full of sweet wine. <laughs> Sweet wine, huh? The group of visiting Jews recognize, remember the, the whole city, the whole city's filled with people. The streets are, it's like popular, super packed. Everybody's looking for a meal. Everybody's looking for entertainment. They're just trying to kill 50 days. They're trying, trying to do something other than leave, spend a bunch of money to come back. So they're just hanging out in town all over the nation. Gentiles, Jews, everybody's in the same, in the same city. Everybody from different court, uh, parts of the land. But the group of visiting Jews recognize the miracle, but can't understand, Luke says, basically, what they're seeing. And then a second group of local Jews dismiss the event. So what are we going to put down here? What's the first response? What's A? What's, what is the first response do you guys see here? We see two. I want you to see the juxtaposition. Two responses. What's the first response? Curious. Confused. Confused. Curious. Anything else? Amazed. Amazed. 
Anything else? Yeah, I mean they were they were not necessarily mocking in it or they weren't negative about it. They're just totally in the dark. They're going, I have no idea what this is. Right? Curious. So those are good adjectives. What do you see as the second group? Skeptical. Skeptical. That's a good word. What's another one? Did I just spell that wrong? Is that a C? Yeah, whatever. Skeptical. Denial. Denial. Ooh, there's a good one. Sarcasm. Wow. Yeah. Cynical. Okay. Another word. Mockery. Yeah. Mocking. Mocking is a very important word I want to throw out there because that's what the Bible says. But, you know, you guys can come up with whatever you want, but I guess mine's the biblical one. <laughs> I'm just joking. So they don't perceive the event as supernatural in origin, and therefore it triggers no questions. They're not asking questions. Did you notice that? They're not saying, well, uh, you know, I'm curious about this. What's going on? They're getting all mocky. They're getting the mock on. Paul explains. Now, first, first, first off, I, I don't want to I don't want to pass this because this is something that a lot of theologians, a lot of Bible teachers will blow through. And I don't want us to miss something really quick. Write this down. Second Chronicles 36, 15 through 21. All you Bible nerds. You guys need to go check this out. I want you to go. This is a little bonus question. I want a bonus bonus. You don't you get an extra cookie if you figure this out. But what are there is a direct fulfillment and a direct correlation in 2 Chronicles 36, 15 through 21 to what we're seeing now. We are seeing something very incredible where there are being mirrored, uh, uh, mirrored events hundreds and hundreds of years earlier, the kings of Judah. Uh, they begin to mock the prophets of God, and the temple is laid bare. The wrath of God is given. There was no remedy. Literally three things happened. They, they began to mock the prophets of God, they despised the prophets of God, and they scoffed the prophets of God. Mm -hmm. Until there was, quote, no remedy to God's wrath. All right, I'll stop right there. But you guys got to go check out that this, this hey, are, are they drunk? Is not a question, but sarcasm. Steve said it the best. It's sarcasm. It's not, hey, is this legitimately a thing? No, no, no. It's legitimately mocking them. And we see the same spirit of man. We see the same thing in 2 Chronicles 36. But then we also can fast forward to Acts 17.32 when Paul's speaking to the, the, the Gentiles and the Jews, excuse me, the Jews, then the Gentiles. He always did that order, Jews, Gentiles. And the Jews begin to, same Greek word, it's, it's uh, iman. Uh, and and it, what it means is mockery. Same Greek word used, meaning 
we are mocking you, we're despising you, and we're scoffing you, okay? It's a very interesting thing that leads to the exact same outcome in 70 AD. The temple is laid bare. Wrath of God poured out. So let's, but but now, now that I give you that little free freebie, let's go to 1 Corinthians 14, 20 through 22. Somebody read that for me, would you? Paul's explaining how God basically uses this unique display. So check this out. Anybody want to read this? Very, I want you to put a little marker on the 22 verse because we're going to be hitting that up later. But quoting from Isaiah 28, 11, write that down, Isaiah 28, 11, is where Paul is quoting 1 Corinthians 14, 21. Why is he doing that? You have to always ask yourself, if you see somebody in the New Testament quoting Old Testament, you need to figure out why. It's a great biblical uh, little nugget of, of scholarship. So he quotes... Isaiah 28, 11, and Paul says this gift was given to fulfill prophecy given to Israel, the gift of the Holy Spirit, this gift of tongues, this gift, this, this Acts 2 event. God told Israel they would know, this was this is crazy, if you're a Jew in that day, if you're a, a, a God-fearing Jew and you knew your Bible, you knew the Old Testament, you would know. From Isaiah's the Isaiah prophet, prophet Isaiah 28:11, you would know that when God was judging them by if or if not, you saw him opening the mouths of Gentiles to speak foreign tongues. This is a real big deal. Let me say that again. You would understand, so God told Israel that they would know when God was judging them, when they would begin to see Gentiles, remember they thought they were dogs, they would begin to speak foreign tongues supernaturally. Here we see the beginning of that prophecy. Paul wants you to, to Luke and Paul wants you to see this. When unbelievers respond to a sign by questioning it and looking for answers. That's the beginning of this prophecy, and it's happening for the first time in Acts 2. Notice that Paul says that the sign was not for believers as a means, <laughs> this is a big deal, of edifying or building up your faith. Tongues, by its biblical definition, is not a tool for edification or for building up your faith. Do you know what it is it's supposed to do? It's supposed to make you go, what's going on? It's supposed to, its intent is to cause 
questioning to the unbeliever. And yet it's clear that this sign was never intended to save a man. Never supposed to save it by a man by itself. Isaiah says that the sign will not transform the Jewish nation into believers. Oh man, there's some, there's some belief systems out there that make very much, too much, of this spiritual gift. In order for this sign to become the means for salvation, it must be united with understanding. Hear me out. It has to be united with understanding and, and the concern of the meaning of the sign. And so it falls to Peter to preach a sermon. Paul starts, or Peter begins to preach a sermon to the crowd which offers an explanation for the events that they've just witnessed. So I don't know about you guys, but if you're ever confused about what's going on with tongues, this is and <laughs> this outpouring of the Holy Spirit, let's just look at what what Peter has to say in one of the most amazing sermons ever preached, ever. And I guess I'm just like kind of a nerd when it comes to the craft of, of preaching because it's so important in Scripture that I look at this all the time as a model. And so I want to do that with you guys today. So guys, I don't know if anybody wants to, to read these many verses, but it's Acts 2, 14 through 21. If you're listening in, just grab your Bible and just listen or read it for yourself. But somebody shout it out if you have it. If not, I can do it. I got it. Hit it, Steve. But Peter talking, uh, oh, but Peter taking his stand with the other 11, raised his voice and declared to them, men of Judah and all who live in Jerusalem, know this and pay attention to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you assume, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what has been spoken through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy, and your young men will see visions, and your old men will have dreams, and even in my even on my male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy, and I will display wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood fire, and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord comes. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Powerful stuff. Powerful stuff. So he's quoting from Joel. Oh boy, we really got a good a lead on a trail here. Peter hears these snide comments coming from these folks saying that they're drunk from the local Jews in the city, saying they're drunk on sweet wine. So he stands with the 11 and raises his voice so loud that everybody in the crowd can hear him. Just picture that for a second. I mean, I'm not even speaking very loud. I mean, I got a little microphone. If I would start shouting, it just makes a spectacle of you. Luke specifically uses the Greek word for shouting. He starts shouting. What Steve just read, he's shouting, okay? Uh, and it shall be in the last days, God said. You know, it was not, hear me for a minute. <laughs> you know, you can dramatize this for a second, but it's intense, man. Peter's this fisherman. 
He's never had this kind of gusto. He's a little bit gusto. Okay, yeah. He had some gusto. What am I talking about? But he's never been a public speaker. He's never even been that great at communicating, we see. But look at this eloquence. And from memory, he quotes an entire almost chapter of a prophet. So he delivers a sermon, beginning with a reading of Scripture from memory. As a young Jewish boy, you have to memorize this. Uh, may, I, may I mention a side note? At the age, at, by the age of puberty, if you're a young Jewish male, you were expected to follow a rabbi. Okay, the rabbi would expect this rubric for your graduation. You'd have to put a nail through the text of the scroll that you memorized, and you would have to uh, hand the scroll over to your rabbi. And then you would have to then orate exactly where the nail, what Hebrew word, the nail pierced through the parchment or the scroll. Each Hebrew word, where the nail hit, where the hole is. And if you were off one word, you had to go do it all over again. Crazy. Have you guys all done that? You guys good with memorizing the Old Testament? I don't know about you, but I couldn't quote Joel. I couldn't quote Matthew. You know, yeah, exactly. Some people are going right now. I didn't even know there was a book of Joel, right? Right next to Second Hesitations, <laughs> Hezekiah. You know, oh man, there's all these Christian jokes I could say right now. But before we examine what Peter says in this chapter, I want to really lay down something real quick for the pattern that Scripture lays out for biblical. The biblical pattern for preaching. Why is that important to you? Because, guys, you you and gals, you guys are preachers. We're preachers. We are teachers, preachers, evangelists. You don't have to be paid to be a preacher. We are the, the definition of preaching is passionately communicating something you really strongly believe. Okay, that's why Jesus says. The preaching of the gospel is so important. We don't hand it over. That, that job is not handed over to a professional. That's why I'm standing here today. I can't not do it. I have to. So what's the Bible say as far as a pattern of preaching? This is one instance where the, this pattern is present and should be taken note because if we follow it, something like what we're going to notice happens happens. So first, we have to already note something, that the Holy Spirit just moved. Okay? The supernatural display of God's power is always a prerequisite, a prerequisite for a faith move, specifically a work of the Spirit brought about by the opportunity for Peter to preach and deliver this message. This wasn't Peter's doing. This is an ordained act of the Holy Spirit. Similar, if we are to reach the world with the gospel, as we are taught as a young evangelical, our work must always begin with the work of the Spirit among the people. Note something, and this is my, this is my small asterisk, it, wouldn't, it doesn't always appear this vivid. It's not always... A crazy outbreak of demonstrative manifestations. But nevertheless, you'll know. 
nor will it ever necessarily grab the attention of so many people that there's a mass mob. Nevertheless, if our message will reach anyone, it must come about by the power of the Holy Spirit. John 6, 4, 4, I'll read it. says this, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me, Jesus is saying this, who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Here the, drawing, here, the drawing ministry of the Spirit is evident in the way that the visiting Jews in the crowd respond to a miracle by asking, what? What does it mean? They didn't say, you're drunk. Those people we've already talked about. Prophesy, uh, mocking uh, the, pro the prophets. But what about these guys? You see, a, a good minister... A good minister of the gospel takes note of the crowd. My, I always teach my kid, read the room. Just read the room, bro, you know? You have to be able to see the Spirit's move. Peter, no doubt, saw this. Here, the drawing ministry is just getting started. He saw the drawing ministry of the Holy Spirit. I want to give this little layout right here. The drawing work of the Holy Spirit is then coupled with what did Peter start with in his sermon? The Word. The Word of God. He didn't tell a joke. He didn't talk about his, his childhood. He didn't talk about a cool thing that happened on the drive-in today. He went straight for the Word of God. That's amazing to me. So similar, our work today is presenting the gospel of presenting the gospel depends on the Holy Spirit to prepare the hearts and drawing men to Christ. Period. But just as in that case, that drawing work is only half the equation. You gotta come to the Word of God, and this is exactly what happens. The second part of the process is found in the message that brings the Word of God. Paul describes this two-part process very succinctly. In Romans 10, 17, and it says this, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. You guys, you ever heard that verse? Faith comes from hearing in the message of the gospel as delivered by the word of God. Confused yet? I hope not. It's pretty simple. I mean, it's really simple. And Peter opens his sermon with a presentation of a joke? Nope. The presentation of God's Word. In particular, a passage that says something about the circumstances. Keep that in mind next time you talk in front of people. Next time you're talking to your friend over coffee. You notice how he's just not just throwing darts over their heads? He's, draw, he's drawing it. You see what just happened, guys? Let's, do you remember Joel? You remember what Joel said? Do you know? Do you see it? Or is this making sense? Are you connecting the dots? We, we're witnessing the biblical way preaching should be done. And I'm saying should because it's that serious to me. I don't do a lot of shoulds. I don't like to should people. But I'm going to tell you, here it is. Number one, you've got to read. It's the reading of God's Word. 
I'm just gonna I'm just gonna say it. You got to read it, guys. It's there for you. It's been preserved. We got to read the text for people. Accompany that with the exposition of the text. You can read this. You know what that means? The meaning. Exposit the meaning. What does it mean? You read it. What does it mean? Third, application. This is what Peter just did. And call to believe based on its meaning. The application shouldn't just be so you guys can be rich, so you guys have a nice life. It's drawing back to the meaning of the text. The power of such preaching, because I'm a nerd about this, isn't found in persuasive speech. I used to think that's what preachers do. And I don't know where you're at with your faith. If you're like, well, I'd never be a preacher, so that counts me out. Er, no, sorry. You gave your life to Christ, you're a preacher. You could do it totally not like Joel Olstein, guys. <laughs> you don't have to do the big podiums. You can do the secretary desk. You can do the mechanics hoist, the gas pump. You can turn anything into a pulpit. But these are your three, these are the three staples of a biblical model of what preaching looks like. Remember, it's not your jokes. That's not interesting. It's not entertaining. You might get some laughs and some claps, but honestly, it's not more interesting than Scripture. And yeah, you could say, well, you got to make it pleasing to today's hearers and relevant. I don't know about that. I don't think so. I mean, if I'm going to hook people into the message of the gospel because of some jokes, I get, that sounds like exhausting to me because I'm not interesting enough. I don't have the entertainment muscle to keep what only the Holy Spirit's job description uh, sustainable. So let's turn to Peter's sermon itself. Peter defends the men. He makes clear that they aren't drunk. It's only 9 a.m. in the morning. In Jewish culture, that was unheard of. You could never be. Men started drinking wine in the late afternoon. But rather, Peter says their behavior is consistent with what Joel wrote concerning the last days. Did you guys know the entire book of Joel is talking about a period called the Millennium Kingdom? Peter quotes from Joel 2, and yet look carefully at what Joel says. The last days, I'm sorry, did I say millennium kingdom? P uh, Pre-millennium kingdom. It's the days of tribulation. The, the days that the Jews, the remnant of Israel, will be here on earth. <laughs> and the church has been raptured, and they will begin to see manifestations of the Holy Spirit that the world has never seen before. And Joel begins to talk about what's going to happen during that time. If you want to study more eschatology, more is coming, I promise you. Uh, I can't wait. I, I love eschatology, but I got to keep it brief today. Because the last days refer to the last three and a half years of the period that we call tribulation. He begins to describe the pouring out of the Spirit upon men, meaning the Jews. 
As a result of the outpouring of the Spirit, the sons and daughters of Israel would begin to prophesy. This is denoting a supernatural visions and dreams that will lead to the confession of Christ as a nation and will, will trigger the return of our Lord Jesus to set up and inaugurate His kingdom for a thousand years on earth. And it will, it will all take place before the great and glorious return of Christ. Looking at those details, we immediately notice that none of those things have ever happened or will or has happened in Acts 2. So why is he bringing this up? You guys ever wonder that? Look at those details. We, we immediately notice that none of those actually happened. Furthermore, the things that have taken place at Pentecost, like speaking in tongues and the wind and the fire, are not even mentioned in Joel's prophecy. So though, so though Peter read from Joel, this passage is clearly talking about a different moment than the one that took place in the upper room. You would think, that's kind of a bad argument, Peter. Are you kind of confused? No, he's not. In fact, the moment that moment Joel is describing is the same moment described in Zechariah 12. Write that down. Go check that out. Zechariah 12 immediately before the Lord's return to reign for a thousand years. Zechariah 12 is gruesome details, I mean that in every good way, about what that, what that moment will look like. Just to be clear, if you are a faith, you place your faith in Christ, I can, I can give you firm, uh, firm uh, good news that this judgment is not for Gentiles. It's for the Jews, the nation of Israel. It is an absolute amazing story that God is writing in a display of His grace. This is a prophecy of how the nation of Israel received the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at the tribulation and received the Lord. We study this moment when it, we study this moment in, when you go through the book of Isaiah. So why does people, people read from Joel? Why does Peter, I'm sorry, why does Peter read from Joel in this moment? Peter is referencing Joel to make the point of how God uses his spirit to cause manifestations. When the Holy Spirit is poured out on Israel in the last days of tribulation, those men and women will act in crazy ways, y'all, similar to the ways the disciples are acting now. They will be filled by the Spirit and say and do things that will appear very, very strange. So here... Peter is making the application of Joel, not an interpretation. I want to write that down. Application versus interpretation. Big difference, right? Application versus interpretation. This is what Peter is doing in his sermon. He's making, he's he's saying, just like what I just read, this applies to you. This applies to you, the Jews. Do you remember this? So he so he is in he is uh making an application of Joel, not an interpretation. Peter is saying that this scene should be understood to be a work of the Spirit because of what Joel said to expect in the last days. Simply put, these witnesses should understand this strange behavior as a work of God by His Spirit and not as human weakness. So having read God's Word, now Peter turns to applying it for the sake of his audience. This is where the preaching truly begins. 
But notice that like all good biblical preaching, the sermon hinges on the meaning of the biblical text and not on human wisdom. Funny jokes, tantalizing stories about what happened at the restaurant last night. I'm not making fun of anybody. I'm not poking. I don't want to be negative. I just want to say, just be careful. The turning point of the sermon comes with the final verse of Joel. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord is in, in response to, the, to God's Spirit will be what? Saved. The only question left to address is, who is this Lord? That's, that's, that's the question that pops into my mind. The, and what, what, what am I being saved from? So let's read this. I'm going to read it for the lack of time. Acts 2, 22-35. It's a long one. Here we go. You guys still with me? Here we go. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourself know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross, whoa, by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart will be glad and my tongue exalted, but moreover my flesh also will live in hope. Because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay, you, may, you have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brethren, Peter says, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to, to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat, to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received the, from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, He has poured forth his, it, this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven. For he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Woo! Peter begins in addressing the crowd as men of Israel. It's a way of saying, Jews, Israel. At this point, Peter is preaching to Jews alone. And this is how it should be. The Jews were to receive the gospel first. Only later does God open the ears of the Samaritans and the Gentiles. Until Peter brings to understand, uh, until until Peter comes to understand that the gospel will reach the entire world, he is logically focused on the Jews. He doesn't even know about the Gentiles at this point. So Peter then begins to name the Messiah who is responsible for stirring up the crowd. Jesus of Nazareth, see that? Who proved his claim with signs and miracles that God performed through him by the Spirit. And these men remembered all these things. It was only 50 days earlier. It's like month and a half. But the question on my on their mind would have been how the Messiah could have been put to death. How did the Messiah die? You ever wonder that? Why 
would a Messiah die? That's not even logical to a Jew. What kind of Messiah would die? Here's the answer, he says. The, Peter anticipated that question, that question. The man was delivered over to death. The Son of Man is another word that Jesus would use. use was delivered over to death by who? Satan? His father. So only God could do that. And this was a predetermined plan. By God's foreknowledge is a word that's used. Predetermined means determined by God's fixed purpose. And foreknowledge means to know beforehand. I know something before it happens in the sense of pre-planned. So God brought Jesus to death because it was a pre-planned event in keeping with God's fixed purpose. That's crazy, right? Are you, are you guys tracking with me? And yet Peter makes clear that God worked through the agency of sinful, godless men in accomplishing the outcome. Whew. Since God is not the author of sin, he relies on sinful men to act on their sinful impulses, and then he directs like a choir. He directs them to be extended to their intended end, is a way I wrote it down. Extended to their intended end, like a, like a maestro. This is, this is crazy stuff. Think about Nebuchadnezzar, you know, the most powerful man on earth. Who gave him that power? God. In the end, God brought Jesus back from the dead because it was impossible for death to hold Christ. Why is that, everybody? Sinless. There was nothing. They got nothing on him. So he only stayed there to, to, for three days to accomplish his goal, to fulfill his word, to keep his promise. He remained there only long enough to accomplish God's purpose. Then Peter quotes from several different psalms written by David to prove his point even more concerning the, the Messiah. First, David said in the psalms concerning the Messiah that he always has been seated at the right hand of the Father. That's interesting. You know, uh, I'm going to skip ahead for time here, but most Jewish rabbis for 400, 500 years B.C., they didn't know what to do with this psalm. So they just assumed that if they would dig up David's dead body, they would actually find a perfect human carcass. Not only that, but they believed that David was going to be the Messiah. Do you guys ever know, know that? This is crazy. That They didn't know what to do with these verses. These prophecies didn't make sense. Not to mention they didn't know what to do with phrases like suffering servant and... and uh, the firstborn of the dead. They had to reckon with a king who's commanding and conquering army general to a suffering servant that's noted by Isaiah who will suffer death. So they thought literally it would be, maybe it's David and this other guy. You see how they, they literally didn't know. And so here we are, Peter knows, knows the scripture, and now it's clicking. It's clicking now. 
He's starting to put the pieces together, baby. <laughs> he's in the zone. I mean, I love that. I love that where he's gotten the light bulbs coming on. And he doesn't even know all of it. He's thinking like Jesus, guys, guys, if we can, if you can repent and be baptized, Jesus would come back like right now. <laughs> Little did he know that literally 2023 is this year and he still hasn't come back. First, traditionally, Jewish rabbis interpreted these verses as a description of David himself. But Peter corrects that view and says that can't be because he said, I said to my Lord. So David, in prophetic, in a prophetic song, he even understands that he's not the Messiah. Christ is. The Lamb of God. And he was buried in a grave actually nearby Jerusalem. And I can picture Peter going, yeah, he's right over there. There's his, there's his grave. And everybody goes, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, he's dead. Yeah, this is great. And he didn't come out of it. He didn't roll the stone away. He's still there. So these words couldn't have been, been, have been referring to David because he's dead. They were describing someone who was resurrected from the dead. Somebody who could bring about eternal life without suffering decay. In the meantime, did Jesus' body suffer decay? Nope. Only Jesus fits that job description, and always has, and always will. Then Peter goes on to say that David knew he was promised to have a descendant on his throne forever. What's he talking about? It means Jesus is the descendant of David. The, the throne is never inherited by a non-family member. It's just the way it goes. But once the throne is inhabited by a man who never dies... It is never going to be given to another. So Jesus summed up the reign of man. That's a, big, that's a big thing to think about. Finally, Peter says that this Jesus has ascended in uh, having ascended is the one who sent the Holy Spirit as promised to his sons, thus resulting in the strange display just formerly just a few minutes ago. Peter testifies in verse 32 that they witnessed their this resurrection. They were the ones that put Jesus to death. So are you are you seeing it? Peter brings his sermon to a climax, and then I'm almost done here. Here it is. Acts 2.36, final scripture reference. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced. What's your, what's your version say? Cut. Some versions say cut to the quick. The Greek word for this, by the way, well, let me, I'll get to that. Let me just keep reading. <laughs> now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, here it is. Do you see this? The faith. The faith, guys. Here it is. What shall we do? Peter said to them, here is what you do. Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit right now. 
For the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day they were added to about 3,000 souls. Heaven spoken truth backed by the power, backed by the power and the authority of God's word, Peter gives a call to <gasps> repentance. And the work of the Holy Spirit is clearly evident in their hearts. Do you see that? The mark of the faith. Then he goes and says, this is what you do. They were pierced, which means shocked or stunned. They knew this was true. By the way, shocked or stunned, it's a Greek word used in that for what Romans used to say. Uh, use when horse hooves would stomp down on the brick. They they made brick highways. That cut, that word that that uh, some of you guys had, if you look up that Greek word, it's escaping me right now, but it's the word for horse hooves striking brick. That's how much that's that's how much the gospel message cut them, shocked them. Have you ever had that happen? Hmm. I'll leave that right there. They knew this was true, but the news stunned them because it showed them that they had previously crucified and rejected their Messiah. And now they were understandably concerned for what they could do now to remedy the situation. So they just asked Peter, what do we do? So he, he answers them, repent and be baptized. I'm going to sum this up. You know what he just asked those people to do? A lot of you guys know what I'm about ready to say. Maybe not. Maybe this is the first time you've ever knew this. If you were standing there and he said, repent and be baptized, you know what he said? He said, renounce your citizenship to Jerusalem. It'd be like you giving up your driver's license, your birth certificate. That's not, I'm not, I'm not making this up. He says, forgiveness is available if you're willing to cut ties with the nation of Israel. That's what he's asking them to do. They, that they too can receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The close connection Peter makes between salvation and baptism is uniquely associated with the Jewish generation of his day. Keep this in mind. Normally, we wouldn't declare that baptism is a necessary requirement for salvation. And it wasn't a requirement for salvation in Peter's day either. But Peter didn't know that. But the generation of Israel that rejected Jesus was under a special judgment that Jesus himself declared in the Gospels when they said, you, Jesus, as a nation, as the leadership of the nation of Israel says, you are a worker of iniquity, Jesus. You are, you're getting your power from Beelzebub. As soon as he did that, a special thing called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit happened. And a special judgment fell upon the nation of Israel that came to culminate 70 A.D., Virtually, the entire nation was executed by the Romans. If a Jew wanted to avoid that judgment, though, you better listen to Peter. In that generation, they must believe in the gospel and be baptized so that they are separated from that generation. This is the meaning of Peter's comment in verse 40. They were being called to an eternal salvation through faith and to an earthly salvation from a 70 AD judgment that's about ready to happen. And if you didn't believe me, just read your history books. Because this is absolutely what happened, exactly 70 years. 
The sacking of Jer Jerusalem. Guess what? This is crazy. Check this out. This is a terrible drawing. But 70 AD happened, right? Everybody talks about it. Well, this is what the year looks like of year 70. Romans, they, they come in to Jerusalem. They leave. And then they come back. They leave for 30 days. And then they come back and kill everybody. Do you see what I'm seeing? Do you see what I'm trying to say? That thing right there. The mercy of God. One more time. One more chance. If you, if, if you repent and be baptized, run for the hills. You will be spared from this generation. One more time. I'll give you one more shot. Isn't that the character of our Lord Jesus Christ? That's a, that's a thing to let settle in. If you, if you see the history, if you read your history about how this went down, Jesus, even in the midst of His most dire, punishable, smiting punishment to the nation of Israel, it literally said the blood ran, ran in the streets like puddles. He gave them one more shot. And it literally says that you do not want to be a pregnant lady with child while running through the mountains in the snow. But at least you'll be alive. This is a big deal. This is a big moment of, of the narrative of Scripture to understand how much grace God actually gives us, even when He's punishing us. So today we wouldn't preach that someone would be baptized to be saved, but guys, He's saying to the Jews... Repent and be baptized to be cut off from the generation that coming wrath is ensuing. Rather, we preach, as Paul did, the Gentiles should be baptized as an obedient act of faith. And on this day, 3,000 men received the testimony of God's Word as preached through Peter, men and women. Reflection questions. Here's the reflection questions today, guys. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm going to read these off, and then I'm going to, uh, then I'll be, I'll pray, and we'll be done. Number one: Am I willing to let go of control and trust God with my life? Number two: Does the fact that God can do miracles make me uncomfortable? Why or why not? Where's Jesus in this? Where's his character? What aspects and attributes of his character are in view? When it comes to finding the truth, number four, here's a big one. Do I lean on biblical text or do I lean on human wisdom? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this fact, the, 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 the facts of Scripture. Thank you for the faith of, of people who are believing the promises you've made. And that we have a word, we have the truth, the word of God, that just through the power of the Holy Spirit bolsters our faith. And it's all right here. We don't need something else. We don't need Jesus plus. We don't need another fill in the blank. We just have it. You've given it to us. Everything we need to carry on. Not just that, but to be filled with joy. 
to be filled with the same joy that you bestow, the same love that you bestow, the same faith that you give us so we can give it out. Thank you for the truth. That I pray that your spirit ministered to the listener today, wherever you're at. And in Jesus' name I pray, amen.